0: Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product.
1: Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldstreet. Today, I'm joined by Scott Sanborn, who is CEO of Lending Club, the only full-spectrum fintech marketplace bank at scale, which has helped more than 3 million Americans save billions of dollars since it was founded in 2007. Scott, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Peter. Great to be here.
1: Yeah, we're, we're really excited. Uh, but you know, as always, we, we try to start off with a, on a more personal note. So perhaps you could walk everyone through a bit of your background and career and sort of how you ended up at Lending Club.
2: Sure, I uh, may surprise you to know I was not always a banker. My early career was actually in advertising and marketing, and I did a lot of work uh, introducing. Uh, I, I was uh, lived in Prague in the early 90s and almost five years over there, uh, introducing much of Eastern Europe to baby shampoo and liquid laundry detergent and canned soda and many of the other uh, wonderful exports uh, from America and got into the internet through advertising initially in the late 90s and quickly moved to e-commerce. And kind of had a front row seat to how that was transforming the customer experience and what kind of transformation was required within the organizations and the operations themselves to go from a, you know, primarily a, let's call it a, a retail storefront or other model to being um, e-commerce. And so I was doing that. I, I was approached uh, by Lending Club now 11 years ago and got excited basically because I felt like you know, technology had disrupted, certainly had disrupted retail and disrupted travel, all these other industries, but banking had yet to be disrupted. And it appeared to be a category that was right for that. The customer experience is famously not great. Lending is a data problem. A tech company should be able to solve both the experience and the data problem. And I felt like if successful, we could build a really big business and a really great brand. And I continue to have exactly that conviction today.
1: Well, that's very exciting. Um, you know, I, I actually... Um... Maybe we could first start off by telling us a little bit about Lending Club, but also I'm, I'm curious, maybe in that answer in response to you can also, what attracted you to come over to sort of the digital banking space um, as a as opposed to staying in kind of the advertising and marketing space as well.
2: You know, never waste a good crisis. So I was actually at one of the early online advertising firms, agency.com, if you remember them. And, you know, what started first as doing advertising campaigns Morphed into doing more digital strategy work, transformation strategy work for clients,
0: and everybody
2: was trying to figure out how do we engage. So I had some financial services clients, but you know I was also working for Fox Studios and you know all, all kinds of different clients. And one of my clients came to us, which was the Home Shopping Network, uh, and said, "We are we're a television retailer. We have this e-commerce thing." We got to figure out our strategy. And for them, it was a really big question because their model is, you know, we have one treadmill, whether it's the first time you run on a treadmill or you do it every day, this is the one for you, but we only have a thousand. And when they're gone, they're gone. That was their, their business model and their KPI, their, their performance indicators internally were all around how much do we sell per minute of airtime that doesn't translate to e-commerce. So they came to us to help them figure that strategy out. And we gave them a plan and they said, great, can you come execute it at, <laughs> at, at the home shopping network? So that's what I went to do. And it just so happened that that coincided with the dot-com implosion. So those two kind of things came together, which was, you know, San Francisco, if you remember, was, was emptied and, um, you know, the, 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 the dot-com world had taken a big beating. So the idea of going to a company and actually helping them solve the problem internally was appealing to me. And it was a great success within, I think, two years. We were a top 25 uh, e-commerce uh, player. So it worked.
1: And then so, so you know, what would, what would you say kind of really brought you over towards having like a true interest kind of in the, in the digital banking space, particularly coming over to Lending Club? I mean,
2: really, I looked at size of market right and said boy you don't have to be you don't have to have dominant market share to build a very very big business i looked at customer pain points again uh, this was following i joined following the backlash of the, the 08 crisis you're you're hearing the the pivotal points in my career all around dot <laughs> <Stock laughs> yeah, com <yeah>. blow up <laughs> uh, the great recession so this was during the whole move my move your money campaign the banks had gotten the bailouts you know people were not satisfied And so it felt like, like I said, like a big brand opportunity. It felt like a big business opportunity. And, you know, the concept of really re-looking at, you know, the experience when I joined Lending Club in a bank to get a personal loan was, you know, if they had an application online, it was just that, an application that was online. You'd print out a PDF, you'd bring it to the bank. And then you would wait three or four days, and they would tell you whether or not you were approved. If you didn't bank with them, the answer was no out of the gate. And beyond that, if the answer was yes, your rate was 17%. That was the typical banking experience. So we, we you know, looked at that and said, "Wow, that can be a lot better." And you know, Lending Club had the instant offer, money in your account for you know 70, 80% of the people the next day, you know, rate based on your risk. So it you know, was a transformational experience that we felt could drive a lot, a lot of growth, a lot of value for customers and a lot of growth. And that's turned out to be true. Uh, we unlocked pretty quickly that the real value proposition to go after was people with credit card debt. So something like 45% of all Americans with credit cards don't pay the bill off every month. And if you don't pay the bill off every month, you have a loan, and it's not a very good one. And Lending Club basically makes it super easy—you know, two minutes for you to save about 400 basis points versus your credit card debt. And oh, by the way, if you—which we make it very easy to do—directly pay off your credit cards as part of the process, your FICO score also goes up, which means you qualify for better rates uh, with any other form of credit you may have. So, killer, killer application, make it easy for people to save money, and that's what really drove the accelerated growth of the company.
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, like, uh, you know, I think you, you alluded to a lot of the different, you know, value adds that Lending Club does provide, but maybe just for everyone, what, what's the, uh, Lending Club's basically uh, primary business and really what is the, the value add relative to any other competitors out there or challengers in the space?
2: So I'll divide it into kind of historically and then, you know, what we've got today. So our historic focus was, was what I mentioned. We would, you know, our, our goal was go after, there's almost a trillion dollars in outstanding credit card debt go after that, lower the cost for people, create very satisfied customers on the way. The way we historically funded that was through a marketplace model. We collected an ecosystem of capital sources that ranged from banks to large asset managers, you know, work with dozens of banks, seven of the 10 largest asset managers, to you know, uh, funds, investment funds. And what that ecosystem gives you is the ability to say yes to a broad range of customers. If you're an 800 FICO, your loan's probably funded by a community bank. If you're a 680 FICO, it's probably funded by an asset manager. If you're a 600 FICO, it's probably uh, funded by an investment fund. So we've got we've got a good product for you across the spectrum. The marketplace model creates some competition for the loan asset, which drives down the price to the customers. So that was our historic business, good value proposition to the customer to save money, funded by a marketplace. What we did this year in February, is we clicked into that a digital bank, which I know the word is overused, but I would say in our case is definitively true, was a very transformational acquisition, because what it did is it allowed us to significantly eliminate key costs in the system. We knocked out uh, about $30 million in issuing bank costs. We used to work with banks to make loans on our behalf. We could now do it ourselves. We lowered our cost of funding significantly by about 90% uh, so that we could use deposits to pool loans for our investors instead of you know, borrowing money through warehouse lines. And we added a new revenue stream, which is net interest income because now we don't sell 100% of the loans. We keep 20% of the loans. That gives investors the confidence that you know we're eating our own cooking and it brings us a new revenue stream. For loans we keep, we earn three times as much as for loans we sell. So we're engaged in a lot of the same activities we were engaged in, pretty much all the same activities we were engaged in. But now we have lower expenses and significantly higher revenue. So as, as a result of that, our first full quarter of a bank, we you know effectively uh, achieved revenue and profits in our second full quarter of the bank, which was last quarter, we beat uh, beat that. Uh, And so we feel really good about kind of the core financial engine of the company to deliver sustained growth in in revenue. As exciting or more exciting is what that allows us to do for the customers, uh, which is now by having banking capabilities, We've got the ability to move beyond lending, do additional lending. We also have an auto uh, refinance product, very similar value proposition, right? You have an auto loan. It's not a very good one. On average, we save people about 500 basis points versus their existing auto loan. That equates to, you know, call it 70 $80 for most people per month in savings, right? So it's really significant. But we can now move beyond that. And those lending, you know, do more in lending, but also start to help people with their spending and their savings. Uh, so that's what we're excited about as we look ahead.
1: Well, I'm just kind of curious. You mentioned, you know, on the personal loan side, relative to you know credit card debt, roughly saving four percent or 400 basis points. And now it sounds like on the auto loan side, roughly five percent or 500 basis points. You certainly talked about some frictions that it sounds as though you guys were able to kind of reduce which I'm sure allows you to offer some more competitive rates. But what are some of the reasons why you're able to offer such drastically more competitive and attractive rates to lenders? And how come the incumbents haven't really been able to move down market to match those rates?
2: Yeah, great question. So there's things outside of us, structural inefficiencies, and then there's things unique to us that, that uh, allow us to deliver. So outside of us, in both cases, we're going after market inefficiencies, structural market inefficiencies. So in the case of auto lending, if you bought your car at a used car dealer, which is about 60% of all auto sales in the US, you are paying too much for credit, full stop, because the dealer is adding a markup that is opaque to you, right? You go in, you decide you want the Honda Accord and you fight like hell for the price. And then you go to the back room and you just accept whatever financing they give you which by the way, might not even be the lowest rate they can get. It might be the rate where they have the best deal with the provider.
0: And then they add a markup
2: onto that. And so you drive off the lot paying more than your risk would indicate. Then on top of that, if you just wait six months and say, okay, is the person paying their loan? Not, not only you know, uh, are they theoretically able to do it, but are they actually paying their loan? That lowers the risk, right? Because uh, you know what they're doing in the dealership when they want the car versus how their actual observed behavior is six months later you have lower risk. So you take an overpriced borrower who's got observed good behavior and you can offer them a new loan. That's the structural inefficiency in auto and credit card the structural inefficiency is, you know, cards are not sold on rate. Uh, they are typically sold on rewards. Your airline miles, right? Your 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 points at, at JCPenney. They're sold on Affinity, you got your Warriors card or your Yale card. And about half of the people actually build balances that earn interest and the other half don't. So the half that are (laughs) building those balances and paying interest have to pay for the half that don't and have to pay for all of those rewards. So structurally, and you know, cards have different operating costs, right? You've gotta be able to underwrite on a per transaction basis. We go in, we underwrite the borrower one time, Fixed rate, fixed payment, 98, 99% of the people auto-pay us through ACH. So, you know, it's a it's a lower cost product to, to implement, and it doesn't have those structural inefficiencies. So that's that's what we're going after in both of those cases that we can attack. And then when you look at us, so why are we able to be the leading provider of unsecured loans in the country? What makes us uniquely competitive is a couple of things. One, we've got a data advantage that's massive. We've you know issued over 60 billion in loans. You know, we've been at this for 14 years, and so we've got a lot of data to inform our decision making and make the right choices. The second is we've got a, a member base we built up of getting close to four million members, and they're coming back to us. They're they're repeating those those repeat customers are coming at a fraction of the marketing cost, and they're also coming in at lower cost of credit. So, so that helps. And then the third is our business model, right? We are a vertically integrated, digital-first bank, which, as I mentioned, means we've got lower expenses and we've got more revenue than uh, you would see at a, a pure, you know, fintech, or even at a pure, even at a pure bank, because we're actually saying yes to more people than a typically bank would, and we're we're getting revenue off of that. So because we're capturing more revenue, we have more we can pass back to the customer on top of those structural inefficiencies.
1: And so, so you mentioned also, you know, some other challenger banks that are coming in that are really just kind of add-ons, right? They're just hopping on some other banking rails and really just offering uh, the lending through an actual bank and charging a fee for distribution and, and ease of access, for lack of a better term. But I'm kind of curious, you know, I imagine also with becoming a bank, you're subject to quite a bit more regulatory Consideration, so I'm kind of curious how you guys went about uh, balancing that decision, and obviously, you know, I imagine it was the right decision. But you know, anything else to kind of support the banking model?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not something you just decide to do overnight and then it happens, right? It's a, uh, it's a, it's an awesome responsibility you have uh, that is, you know, subsidized by the broad uh, American consumer and taxpayer, and and with that comes a lot of responsibility. In, in our case, because about half of our loan funding came from banks, we've been working with banks since 2014, they require you, there's something called the Bank Services Act, they require, the regulators require banks to treat their partners, uh, their vendors, as an extension of themselves. And therefore, they require you to be you know, uh, operating at their standards. So things like data privacy and security, bank secrecy and anti money laundering, fair lending considerations, all of those things, you know, um, needed to be kind of at, at a bank level, model monitoring, model governance, I could keep going. And so we built a pretty large risk and control infrastructure to enable that. And you know, kind of came to the conclusion that we've got most of the costs but none of the benefits. And given the, both the financial benefits and the strategic benefits I, I shared earlier, we said, you know, let, let's go make this happen. And then you know, we looked at, should we apply de novo or could we purchase? And our conclusion was that by buying a bank, it would really more quickly get us to the destination we wanted to be at, which is we're quite good at lending. That is our DNA. Let's, if we can find someone, which we did, who's good at digital deposit gathering and digital deposit experience, that would, you know, one plus one would equal three, if you will. So the the bank we acquired is a multi-award winning uh, bank, uh, formerly known as Radius, uh, who's won uh, multiple uh, accolades for their digital checking account, which, by the way, is a product that was really on brand for us. Because it's a rewards checking account that rewards you for spending money you have, not for spending money you don't have.
1: Very interesting. And then you know you, I um, imagine with all this consumer activity and all this this data that you're able to gather, I'm sure kind of some of the the, the consumer is, uh, insights uh, that you guys are able to glean are, are probably probably pretty substantial. So I'm just kind of curious. You know, obviously the pen the pandemic is partially in our rear view, however keeps kind of popping up, and certainly there are some. Um, you know some some changes that have happened, both behavioral as well as how consumers spend and think about money. I'm kind of curious, you know, what what Lending Club has learned over the last 18 months or so uh, since COVID happened.
2: Yeah, I think we all wish it was in the rearview mirror. How's that? <laughs> so, you know, I guess a bunch of ways I could come at this in terms of the the consumer. Well, maybe I'll just talk about our experience through it and how it's affected consumer behavior and and investor behavior. So, you know, we, ironically, in October of 19, we, you know, we do all kinds of, you know, crisis planning here to be to be ready for any situation. In October of 2019, we actually did a crisis planning event based around a pandemic. So we actually had a playbook when things started to look like they were gonna go where they were gonna go, which was in February, we actually pulled it out and said, all right, let's execute it. We, you know, set, couple of clear priorities, keep employees safe and effective, support our members, that's what we call our borrowers, uh, and protect investor returns and preserve our capital because we knew we wanted to be in a position to buy the bank. Sent everybody home, ordered all the work from home kits from our call center. And then, you know, that was the the keep employees safe part. And, um, you know, we're Zoom and Slack enabled and we're then, I think everybody is now. Uh, So we were able to hit the ground running there. And in terms of supporting our members, we immediately uh, did a couple of things. We pivoted a big portion of our our operations, our, our call center support, took people out of sales and we put them into support and servicing because we anticipated a tidal wave of, of Uh, Consumers coming in, members coming in, saying, I need help. I need help. I'm losing my job, right? That was, as unemployment uh, was just starting to skyrocket up. So we did that, uh, pivoted people over to really up our service so that we could answer the phone calls, which we're able to successfully do, not have the, you know, three-hour wait times that you've heard about elsewhere. We launched a total of four different payment plans so that we could offer people options to bridge them through a period of uh, uncertainty. Um, and you know, uh, all that I think we executed uh, quite well. And then on protect investor returns, we just we pulled back on originations proactively. And even when investors were telling us, "No, no, no, we're still in, we're still buying," we said, "No." Like we know we we believed we knew where it was heading. We pulled back on marketing and the only you know, kind of lending we were doing was to our existing customers. So if an existing customer needed us, uh, we were there for them, but we stopped doing marketing to new customers, uh, tightened the underwriting, raised the prices so that investor returns would be protected. And unfortunately had to go through a round of cost cutting to just make sure we were gonna be positioned to weather a pro what we anticipated to be and what was a prolonged period of, of depressed revenue. So, you know, fast forward to today, that worked. We preserved our capital, we're able to acquire and capitalize the bank. Our investor returns, uh, you know, really came through. The asset class as a whole did great. It was a big question. Personal loans had not been through a recession. I didn't mention that, but, you know, we helped grow the category quite significantly. When, When I joined Lending Club, the entire category was doing about 10 billion in loans. That was in 2010. In 2019, Lending Club alone did 12 billion in, in the year. Um, and the category as a whole is probably I don't know, 120, 130 billion. So the category at that scale hadn't been through a recession. People were really curious how the asset class would do. And the answer is as you probably know, all credit did great, but relatively, the personal loan asset class did uh, did really well. In fact, it came in as a in the payment hierarchy even above credit cards. Uh, so that's great. Within personal loans, Lending Club outperformed. So we shared in our uh, recent data that because of the efforts we made to um, you know tighten underwriting, offer these uh, servicing plans to our members. Our delinquencies came in about 50% below our peer set, so really, really significant outperformance there. And I'll add, I talked a lot about what we did and, and, and us, but the borrowers also did amazing things, right? I mean, they came into this recession with better balance sheets than you know in times past, and they behaved prudently. They paid down credit, so prepayments went up when they thought they couldn't make a payment, they call, you know, they called and said, can I get a can I get a bridge? So the consumer did their part. And they, as you know, they also dramatically reduced their spending to lower their base. So consumers behave very prudently.
1: So so for the most part, though, I'm just kind of curious, you know, you saw um, most people seek to pay down their outstanding debts that necessarily need to look for extension of debt of any kind, right? you, you saw people, so do you think that was a combination of people, you know, again, not spending as much on purchases and reprioritizing? Do you think it was just, you know, also some of the windfall of excess cash from, um, you know, from from payments from the treasury?
2: Yeah, it was all of the above. And different consumers were obviously situated differently. We saw immediately as the pandemic was hitting and unemployment was going up, we saw prepayments going up pretty mm-hmm. significantly. So those were people saying, "Ooh, I don't like where this is going. I want to lower my expense base. This ongoing bill for my for my lending club loan, I'd like to, you know, reduce that. We saw other people who, you know, lost their job and said, hey, I lost my job. I I think I can get a new one, but I need help. I need a bridge. And as, you know, to your point, two things happened. The places people could spend were reduced, right? I mean, people weren't spending on travel. They weren't spending on restaurants. They weren't, you know, they were spending less at, at retail and on fashion. So that, that helped. And the government stimulus and support gave them uh, some breathing room as well. So that helps. So all of that combined to, you know, have credit, not only, you know, n- not deteriorate, it actually outperformed pretty significantly, right? Losses were at uh, kind of historic lows uh, in, m- in many categories.
1: And then, then um, you know, to that point, I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, did any one cohort of, of borrowers perform better, you know, whether it's prime, subprime or anything across, you know, FICO score?
2: I would say it, across the board, uh, there was outperformance. There was not a significant, you know, versus what you would expect from the portfolio, meaning you would expect superprime to be better than prime, to be better than, uh, be than, than near prime, And, you know, we saw that, but all of them outperformed, ex- all of them outperformed pre-COVID expectations, right? So that's why I'm saying, like, it wasn't that, oh, we thought things would get worse and they didn't get as bad as we thought. It was Pre-COVID, we thought loss curves would look like follow a certain shape. It came in below that. And even, you know, even the most impacted vintage, which would be, you know, let's call it Q4 of 2019 or Q1 of 2020, delivered strong returns for loan investors. So, you know, it's good news for loan investors, it's also good news for borrowers, right? Because loans underperforming. I mean, borrowers are struggling and, you know, their credit reports are deteriorating, which can have a lasting impact on, you know, not only their their financial health, but also their physical and, and mental health. So I think good, good relative outcome all around there.
1: And then when you, you know, sort of take and, and look forward, you know, how do you kind of expect, um, you know, consumers to behave? And how do you expect kind of lending going forward, uh, you know, just across kind of the loan book that you guys operate?
2: Yeah, I mean, we are underwriting and Pricing to a pre-COVID loss expectation, so we are not we are not taking the you know recent kind of benign environments as a steady state and assuming that will continue. We are not you know therefore trying to open up credit and go beyond what we would have historically done. We've effectively re-implemented kind of the, the pre-COVID kind of pricing and and underwriting and are assuming that. You know, loans we book today will go back to their historic curves.
1: Very helpful. Um, I, I do need to pivot here a little bit because you said something that I thought was uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, and certainly, as a leader of people, I'm you know I'm kind of and a leader of a company. Very curious your thoughts here. But you mentioned a very specific, uh, you know, crisis management slash pandemic playbook. So I'm kind of curious. You know, how many playbooks you know does the executive team at Lending Club or you know throughout your career sort of create? And also, I'm just kind of curious. Um, what level of detail really goes into these? Like how much can you actually you know, have the foresight into versus kind of just you know, a couple of top line things that you think you need to prioritize?
2: Yeah, so we've got a pretty robust enterprise risk function, right? Which is a group of people that, you know, when you have people like me who are inherently optimistic and wanna <laughs> go, 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 it's great to have a group of people who frankly get paid to sit around and think about what could go wrong. Right, where, where where could things go awry? What do we not have covered in our operational risks and third party risk management and in, you know, interest rate environment, you name it. And um, so we've got all kinds of um, metrics we monitor, uh, thresholds we watch, action plans that get triggered as a result of that. And this particular exercise I talked about was a tabletop business continuity exercise, right? I mean, you live in, we're in San Francisco, that's where our headquarters is. Um, And, you know, it's an earthquake prone place. So we got to be thinking about what happens if earthquake hits San Francisco and people can't get into the office, like what's our response? How, you know, what systems do we need to be up? How quickly do they need to be up? Who needs to be reachable? What are the actions they need to take? So we have all of that documented and we do tabletop exercises every year to kind of practice that out and scenario plan. And we believe that, you know, positions us to be able to respond quickly, right? The muscle is somewhat developed and we can flex it when we need to. And, and it's, I think it's really helped us get through this. I mean, unlike, you know, you're hearing about the great resignation our our employee retention rates are actually below where they were or or above retention is above, departure is below where we were in 2019. Our engagement scores are as exhausted as everybody is by Zoom, myself included. You know, people are really engaged, uh, so I feel like it really helped bridge us through.
1: And then, you know, just 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 kind of around how you think about you know the future of the workplace. You okay. know, how does Lending Club think that the workplace will evolve, and also what do you think kind of are some key considerations?
2: So I'll tell you how we're thinking about it. I don't pretend to know the answer. I can tell you I got a high degree of conviction that people who are emphatically declaring that they do this early in the experiment are likely likely going to be wrong. So one of our values is evolve with purpose, and uh, that's what we've been doing. And our current setup is We've implemented, you know, uh, testing infrastructure to get us back to the office two days a week. We think employees like the flexibility of being able to work from home and, you know, certainly are able to be productive, but we also uh, believe and are getting the feedback that, hey, one of the reasons they work at the company is they love the culture of the company. They love the people they work with. And when you've got an ambitious product and technology roadmap that requires Cross functional brainstorming and collaboration, there's real value to FaceTime. So, uh, you know, we've got uh, all uh, vaccinated volunteers coming in uh, two days a week. And we try to make those two days a week really deliberate. Uh, Everybody gets tested on Monday, they come in Tuesday, Wednesday, and we try to have that be mostly in person meetings. So that's how we're looking at it. And we'll, you know, we'll continue to evolve.
1: My next question is just a little bit around what you had said up front. I just thought it was a really interesting kind of parallel, right? Especially with your background, you know, in advertising really, um, and really advertising around CPGs, right? Could, uh, consumer products, right? That's um, right. How you kind of took some of that, you know, backdrop and kind of experience and how you applied it to, you know, again, a fintech slash, uh, you know, a bank. Um, and what were some of the lessons learned and what were some of the challenges?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I benefited and it has really influenced the makeup of, of the team that, that we've assembled today, including the board, really benefited from people who question how things are done and why things are done that way versus uh, including also people who know how things are done. And my role when I came in in 2010 was to be to be the former, like, why do we do it that way? This doesn't make any sense. And, but you need to have someone who knows the answer to that question Sometimes they have a really good answer, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. And sometimes they don't. And you should relook at it. And so I'll give you one of the key examples. When I joined, I said, God, you know, our, our first page, like you land on the website and we ask you for your social security number. And it's like, man, I don't even know you yet. And you want my social security number? You're some random, you know, it seems it doesn't seem as scary today maybe but like you know you want me to, like this company I never heard of wanted me to give my social security number and I said do we have to have that and they said well yeah you have to have it because that's how you find their information at the bureau and I said well can't we find their information at the bureau by like you know using name address date of birth and some other things?" so like yeah probably 90 95 percent of the time I'm like well okay They're like but we anyway need their social to give them a loan and I said you know and I'm trying to give them a loan. We're trying to give them a loan offer. If they want the loan, then we'll ask them for their social, because at least, you know, they've given us something, we've given them something, now we ask for something again. And so we put that in, we changed it, we took Social Security out, moved it to after they said they wanted the loan offer, and it was a 21% increase in conversion. And that's now the, you know, industry standard practice. Of course. So that would be just an example of how that kind of outsider perspective that we continue to embrace today in product and technology and marketing and in management kind of furthers our thinking. And getting that balance right is really important.
1: And then, you know, along those same lines, how how do you make lending fun, right? Which I imagine, you know, coming from, you know, an advertising slash marketing backdrop, you know, you certainly want to make things engaging and exciting and, you know, lending might not always feel that way inherently.
2: Yeah, there's some it's a really interesting business. It took me a while to get my head around it because I I couldn't think of another company where when a customer wants your product, you say no. And that's what you have in lending, right? Uh, in fact, the people who most want your product are probably the people who are you're least able to give it to. But you know that said, what I will tell you what is rewarding and and fun is that uh, one. The customer feedback is amazing, right? I mean, you know, I could share any number of like customer quotes, but it's like, they love us, right? Our NPS score is like an 80, 90% of our customers said they'd consider us as a bank, should we offer that service? Well, guess what? We will, uh, you know, 83% said they want more lending products with us. So it's a really, it, that part's, you know, really energizing because the people love the experience and they love the fact that we're saving them money and we really are innovating and iterating in ways that, you know, the difference between saying no to a customer and yes, in terms of the joy you can deliver versus the disappointment you can deliver. And, you know, we're continuing to innovate and find ways, how do we say yes to more people? What data can we pull? What questions can we ask that get us there? And, you know, we've you know continued to make amazing progress of, you know, marching down like, hey, you know, not sure if I can approve you, but if instead of giving you money, you want me to pay down your existing debt, maybe I can. Maybe if you had a cosigner, I can. Maybe if you let me look at your cash flow, I can. Like, how do I get you to a yes? And so that that fires everybody up here to you know bring more people in, help them save money, get them onto the path of a better financial future.
1: That's great. So we're about running up at time. Uh, Sky, I want to turn it over to you for any parting thoughts, and also maybe you could tell everyone how they can find and or learn more about Lending Club. Well, the easiest
2: way on that is uh, the website, LendingClub.com. That's where you can find more information. Obviously, we're a public company. So if you're interested uh, in those materials, there's a separate IR website there as well. I guess the parting thought I'd leave you with is there's never been a better time to start a digital bank. Um, You know, the, the pandemic really accelerated the push to digital and really, you know, drew back. The driver of branches as a pusher of choice. And credit is, as we mentioned, has been uh, exceptionally benign. So, you know, we're really excited to take this new model and continue to find new ways to deliver value for our members.
1: That's great. This was uh, incredibly ex- uh, insightful for me. Uh, I know I certainly learned a lot too. And it's great to hear about Lending Club and all that you all are doing. For everyone else, I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. And to listen to other episodes of The Yield, please visit and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. And for any questions on Street, please visit www.yieldstreet.com or email us at investments at yieldstreet.com. Thanks so much. Thank
2: you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to Yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at Yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street.
0: Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10 percent.
2: Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at YieldStreet.com.